All right, welcome to Researching Happy. This is the podcast all about the stories behind the studies um, of the research world of happiness and well-being. And it's a great pleasure to host today Dr. Katina Ali, a great friend of mine. And, um, you know, we haven't seen each other for a little while, so it was great to catch up. Katina is a clinical um, psychologist and a researcher who's focused about understanding or who's passionate about understanding and breaking down the barriers towards seeking professional help, which is such an important but difficult step for someone experiencing serious mental illness. So we cover a lot, a lot of uh, territory in this, in this conversation. Um, we talk about sort of our research team and, and a bit of insight into, into how the, the sort of the group dynamics of individuals work. We cover a lot about Katina's work, particularly on eating disorders and barriers to help seeking, uh, but also the complicated relationship that... Um, that well-being has with with um, with in this case eating disorders. So it's never as straightforward as I guess we sometimes wish it were. But um, there's a really interesting and complicated relationship I think between these these two concepts. Um, and then we go into this um, this border closure study that um, that Katina and I were that um, well that we led. Um, and this is a real glimpse I think in as a story behind the study. Um, You'll hear a little bit more about, yeah, I guess the mental health impact of um, of when Australia closed its international border. So with that, uh, Katina is so engaged in her life that she doesn't have social media. She, so I think we're going to need a little bit of help to get this episode out there. Um, so if you're listening and you're and you're and you're um, you're finding something valuable in the episode, please share it. Um, as we've been saying in previous episodes, find one other person you think um, that might be interested in this episode and send it around. I think in this case, if we can find two or three people, that would really help. Um, because yeah, Katina's just um, really interesting and, and you'll see the passion and the care um, as, as Katina's talking about her clients and her work. So thank you. Um, like and subscribe wherever you're seeing this thing. You can give the show a rating on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. Um, you can support the show at Locals. Uh, otherwise, yep, yeah, link will be in the in the description. Um, starts from about five dollars a month. Otherwise, um, enjoy. Thank you. All right, this is researching happy. We've got my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Katina Ali. Uh, so I've got a quick bio for you, Katina. I have. I think this is episode eleven. I've already cut off most of my guests when they say they want to say hi, and I'm already going into their bio. So <laughs> you can say <laughs> hi if you would like. Hi. <laughs> yep. All right. Cool. Uh, so Katina is a senior lecturer at a newly senior lecturer, or no, newly. <laughs> you're not newly senior. <laughs> you're a senior lecturer at a new university for you, which is the University of the Sunshine Coast. Um. You are also a research associate at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute, or SAMRI, which is obviously where I work. You completed your PhD in clinical psychology at the Australian National University in 2020, focused on investigating the help-seeking barriers and online peer-to-peer -peer support for eating disorders. Katina has a strong interest in developing, implementing, and disseminating digital interventions for the promotion of well-being and the prevention of and early intervention of mental health problems. Welcome to the show, Katina. Thanks, Matt. Where did you get that info from? Is it wrong? 
No, it's all correct. All good. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something I'm going to give you a hard time about later. It's your, it was your bio from your previous role. Obviously the new one hasn't been updated because you're fresh at the job. Um, and invisible online. And invisible online. That's that's what I was going to give you a hard time about. <laughs> I said before that uh, we started recording, someone gave me some some um, advice for when you're starting a new podcast that your most popular guests, your, sorry, your most popular episodes will be with your most popular guests. You very intentionally have no social media presence. So, <laughs> so you're not that mess. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's completely fine. You're not here for the, um, for your role in spreading the word about the episode. You're here because I think you have something extremely valuable to talk about. And, and, and I love you as a person, obviously. So, um, so just a bit of background for people that are listening. This is basically going to be a conversation of two friends catching up. We previously lived in the same city. You now live on the other side of the country in a much warmer and more tropical, sunny place to live in the Sunshine Coast. Um, so, and we haven't seen each other for a couple of months. So, so that's kind of where we're at. That's exactly right, Matt. <laughs> All right, cool. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. So... Let, let's start with the new role. So congratulations. You've got a new job, senior lecturer, full-time job. That's, that's the dream, I guess, for researchers. That's not always the most common thing to find. How long have you been, how long have you been at the Sunshine Coast now? Yeah. So yesterday, I think exactly four weeks is when I started in the, in my new role. And I think we probably like moved here five or six weeks ago. So yeah, not too long. And yes, it is really nice and warm and sunny. Sorry to say that <laughs> it's a lot warmer <laughs> than in Adelaide and um, yeah, missing the people, but I'm not missing the weather at the moment. Um, yeah. All right, cool. So what I think is really interesting about you, Katina, is that you have basically your research life or, I mean, just your life in general has, has, or your research or your work has taken you literally around the world. Um, I'm the kind of guy who lives two doors down from his parents. <laughs> so I haven't moved that far. Um, but you, on the other hand, have, you know, have, have traveled around with your work. And I think that would just be really cool if you, if you're happy to sort of share that because, um, it is one of the perks I think of this, of having an international career like research. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to, to take you back to the days. <laughs> um, so I'm originally from Germany as some of you might hear, or maybe not. And, um, yeah, never really planned to to be here in terms of my career or in terms of, well, I, I always had a bit of a um, soft spot for Australia, so I always loved the country. Um, yeah, where to start? It's it's actually, it's, it's not an easy one where to start, but I guess I'll start in Germany. And basically the story about, you know, taking yeah taking me around those different countries like I can't really tell that story just for myself because it mm -hmm. involves my partner Dan who obviously you also know um, and myself because we kind of like moved each other further away from home in a way so from Germany the first step away was to Portugal and that was where he um, did his PhD and so during that time I was completing my bachelor and my master at a distance university in Germany 
And then so the second step to Singapore again was because he took up his first um, position as a lecturer in Singapore. And I, because I gladly did a distance degree, could just take my degree with me to Singapore and finished there. And then it kind of was my turn. Um, a colleague of his then moved back to Australia and was always trying to get us into the country. I might send this episode to her. Thanks, Amy. You finally got us into Australia um, for a PhD scholarship. So she sent me this after she sent him different jo jobs as well. Um, and I honestly never really intended to do a PhD. I, I never even intended to study. Um, that was, yeah, yeah, none of these things were planned and neither did I really yeah, know or think that I could do something like that or what it actually meant. Um, anyway, PhD scholarship sounded cool because it was in Australia and because it was in the area of young people, mental health and technology. That was an area where I worked as a research assistant on projects in Germany and in Portugal as well during that time while studying, um, thanks to the internet and all of this these days, all of that is possible. And yeah, then we moved to Canberra. I had no idea about Canberra. I've never heard of Canberra. Not like, but you know, Canberra hasn't got like a reputation like Sydney or Melbourne internationally. So whilst we have traveled to Australia before and loved it, we haven't been to Canberra. And yeah, then went to Canberra where I started a straight research PhD and then transferred um, into a clinical PhD. And yeah, I guess it was one of the best decisions um, we have made for, for, for many different reasons. So then Canberra, I think we were there for four or five years. Um, and then Mike, who I'm sure um, you will talk to in one of your episodes as well, um, went to Flinders University in Adelaide um, and we were lucky enough to be able to, yeah, secure two positions at Flinders, um, both one for Dan and one for myself. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, again, Adelaide's not a Sydney or Melbourne, but that was a really good thing for us. We thought, oh, sounds really nice. Sounds like a really nice place. Uh, hopefully it's a little bit warmer in South Australia. Turned out the winters were just as horrible. <laughs> Um, and I think that's where, yeah, the journey with, with you guys started and where we then met each other and had a really amazing time and a difficult time leaving the place. And yeah, now we're at the Sunshine Coast, finally at a place which reflects the weather, I guess, people from outside of Australia expect Australia yeah, to yeah. be like, <laughs> that is warm and sunny all year round. Um, yeah, that's a little bit the, the the pathway so yeah in terms of the career a and u was obviously you know a phd student and, and me completing the phd and then adelaide was um a postdoc and now my first continuing role as a senior lecturer which is awesome. really exciting and, and nice yeah amazing yeah can i go back a few steps when you said you never intended to study so mm -hmm. you, you've 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 kind of mentioned that before like you weren't particularly mm -hmm. like an academic person in high school like I think people have this idea in their head when they think of like a a professor or a or a, a lecturer at university like you know they were got straight A's in high school and then they did their undergraduate and got straight A's or whatever and then you know just continued to succeed in this straight line um 
you've had the success, but not necessarily that origin story. So it would be cool mm. to hear like your perspective on that. Mm, yeah, just think of the opposite person. That would have been me. Um, I, yeah, I was definitely um, not a great, great student, I think. And I have honestly reflected back on that a, a fair bit, why that was the case, because I have a genuine curiosity in learning and I love learning. But for some reason in school, I just I just never felt that. And um, yes, yeah, so then, you know, when when you're not a, a necessarily great student, it's not. Yeah, I, I didn't think that um, I would study or I could study or. Yeah. And then things fell into place and I developed that real curiosity and interest in psychology. Also met Dan during that time who was studying psychology. And I was like, this is so interesting. I want to do that too. <laughs> nice. Very yeah. Cool. So right, yes, so um, for, for everyone time. out there, you know, who thinks, oh, this, this is the kind of like person it takes to go onto that pathway, I would very much say not necessarily. Absolutely. All right. Very cool. So let's hear a little bit about, before we start talking about well-being and happiness, I, mm -hmm. I think you're a interesting person for this. I mean, for lots of reasons, but for this conversation, I think what I'm trying to get out is, um, oh, firstly, I want to hear the work that you've done sort of before. I, I guess it's fair to say, you can correct me if I'm wrong, sort of coming bef before you came to Adelaide and we sort of were able to work together. Well-being wasn't necessarily something on your professional radar. It wasn't something you were necessarily focused on in your research. So you were kind of like like many people around the world studying psychologists, like kind of happily um, working along on other important topics, um, but, then, but then have come across well-being. So I really want to hear you know, a little bit about that. So let's hear firstly about like the topic of your PhD and, and that postdoc work that you were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for my PhD, when I started that journey that I never really intended to do, and I actually also had no, no real idea what it meant. Um, I had an amazing supervisor and she, in one of those first meetings said, you know, Katina, um, you're on that journey now. And I, I really encourage you to choose a topic that you're really passionate about. Mm. And that is one of the, you know, one of the number one advice I now give to people. And I think that has shaped my, <clears throat> my whole pathway tremendously because when you do something with passion and I think, you know, that's something like we, we share in, in many areas as well. And, you know, from knowing how and, and why you work in that space as well, it just makes everything so much more fun and so much easier as well. Mm -hmm. So that broad topic, topic for my PhD was kind of clear mental health, young people, technology, but then um, I could kind of like take it into a particular direction. I took it into the area of eating disorders, um, an area I'm really um, interested in and passionate about because I had friends who were experiencing difficulties with that and I just really wanted to make a difference and see how we can help people um, what we can do to prevent the illness, but then also very much like what we can do to actually get people into reaching out for help. So mm -hmm. that's why part of my PhD also focused on on barriers, like what prevents people from seeking 
help for eating disorders specifically. And those barriers are slightly different than they are for other disorders, because quite often a person who experiences an eating disorder doesn't really want to lose their symptoms. Um, they make them feel good. And some say they actually make them feel happy, not eating make, makes them feel happy. So it's an area I'm really fascinated and, and passionate about. Um, and then kind of like took a little bit of that into my postdoc as well, always continue to work in that area. But then very early on in our journey, we met you guys. Um, and yeah, learned all about the world of well-being and got you really curious in that. And I think... Um, that was one of the best things that could happen because it really, it broadens the horizon and the two really do work together. You can't see them separately. And in hindsight, I find it weird that in our training, you know, we, we don't really learn anything about well-being. I mean, a little bit, but it's not integrated um, into the training pathway as a, tra- as, a cli- as a clinician. As a clinician, yeah, 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 yeah. What was the little bit that you think you covered? You said That's you covered a, a little bit. Well, I guess a little bit to not say we didn't cover anything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I guess they're not so separate that you wouldn't consider, you know, any disorder without considering a person's overall life and mm. overall quality of life. So, you know, I guess when 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 you do see someone and you try and understand what their life looks like and um, what their circumstances are, you would always consider, you know, a social context as well and, you know, relationships. You would always consider, like, what is it that brings them fun and brings Mm. them meaning in their life? Um, But, yeah, I guess, you know, not in a, like, from a theoretical background or a bit of a deeper knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm. Very good. All right, cool. And so had you heard about well-being? Like, had you heard about so you were at Australian National University. I guess that's basically our, our strongest university in, in Australia. Um, and you're in a strong psychology department. Had you heard about positive psychology at that time? Yes, definitely. Um, although, and I guess, you know, like I, I think you and you shared that critical uh, view on it as well. It's always had a little bit of a reputation that the the – I guess the methodology and um, and the science wasn't as rigorous. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, without us having had too much knowledge in the area, that's a little bit the reputation that we had. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that didn't really um, impact any of my thoughts about it or, you know, entering into that space in terms of research. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think <laughs> it's, you know, that's been a reoccurring um comment i guess on multiple episodes of the show so far people have said like um yes it has its weaknesses but you know i'm I'm trying to be part of making it stronger Mm, mm. Um, and i think a lot has changed over the last few years so i think that's another really important um yeah thing to say Mm. all right cool and so can i ask probably the most annoying question like i'll put on my radio journalist hat where you only have 30 seconds in an interview (laughs) barriers to eating disorder like what are mm-hmm. the top three and what's the advice you would give to someone who has a close loved one struggling mm-hmm. top three barriers that we've um identified so far and the, the research is a bit mixed 
depending on the age group, <clears throat> depending on the countries, and obviously the healthcare systems mm. play a huge role as well. So I will now not refer to any of the systemic barriers like, you know, a cost that could prevent someone okay. or something like, you know, living rural and remote and they are not able to see a psychologist. But if we talk about the perceived barriers, so what people have reported, they themselves have experienced that this has prevented them from seeking help. Um, denial and a failure to perceive the severity of the illness. So that's, I don't have a problem. I can see it in other people, but I don't think I have a problem or I don't think my problem is severe enough. Okay. It's a little bit like, oh, all my other friends are on a diet as well. Like it's, it's fine. Um, mm -hmm. So in a way, normalizing the behavior and then actually not realizing how severe it is. Um, another really strong one that came out in the literature as well was um, like not wanting others, not wanting to burden others with their with their problem. So not wanting to, you know, reach out to someone because they don't want to be a burden. Basically. Do you mean like to health professionals or to like the people around them? Yeah, both. Really? Both. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I think that uh, ties in nice, nicely to your to your second question. Um, and another, and 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 they are in no order now, right? Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. I, We are not at a point yet where we can say this is number one, two, mm -hmm. and three, mm -hmm. like a systematic review that I did back in twenty seventeen. I could reflect on that. But then so many things have changed over the past few years and the, the studies that we've done, um, yeah, have had some slightly different findings. So another one is um, that idea of I can help myself. Oh, yes. It's, and that's tied into the first one where I don't believe I need help. I can actually help myself. It's fine. It's a phase. Yep. Um, and I'm okay. A big one that's talked about a lot. Sorry, I'm now on number four. No, yeah, <laughs> I would have not going. passed your no. 30 second this, thing. This a is big one absolutely been, why we're talking for longer yeah. than 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> that's been talked about a lot of stigma and shame. And yeah. while that certainly is a huge barrier, and I think, you know, for uh, for other mental health problems in, in general, um, it's not what we have found in the literature so far, and certainly not in the studies that we've done in Australia, which could have different reasons. So, you know, maybe we're doing a really good job here about talking about mental illness in, in general. Um, there's a lot of, like, seems to be a lot of really good knowledge um, as well in terms of eating disorders. I don't know, but that's something that, um, yeah, hasn't been like the number one mm -hmm. in the studies that we've done so far. When it comes to what can you do um, as someone who has a loved one who is experiencing any sort of, you know, ranges from body image concerns to disordered eating, to a full-blown eating disorder. Mm. It doesn't really matter. It's listening, listening to them and giving them the space and trying to talk, um, trying to have that open communication. And, you know, it's that idea of I care about you and and I want to help and I and I am concerned mm. because what we you know hear a lot of people with 
an eating disorder actually saying is that it's almost like there's that voice in their head that constantly says, oh, but you're fine, like you're okay, just continue as you are, like this is good. And so there's that internal battle. So when someone actually then comes and wants to help, the eating disorder voice gets really strong and tries to argue against that. So yeah, and a lot of patience and, and, and really just being there for the person. Mm. Mm. I didn't realize until I met you guys how severe, um, like obviously I recognize that it's severe, but even compared mm. to other mental disorders, um, it's like ranked number one for most, I can't actually remember the stat, but probably you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so <clears throat> what we would always say is like anorexia nervosa has one of the one of the highest mortality rates of all mental illnesses. Mortality. Yeah, and so you know, obviously when we talk about eating disorders in in general quite often the lay person, you know, when I talk to someone who hasn't really familiarized themselves with the topic think about anorexia because that's what's portrayed in the media but there are actually so many different types of eating disorders it's both bulimia nervosa but then there's binge eating disorder as well mm. which actually has one of the highest um prevalence rates but is less known um yeah and we you know we, we see people and they say oh i didn't actually i, I was struggling and all the time experiencing all these difficulties and i didn't actually know that this is a disorder and um, yeah. So yes, very severe condition um, and yeah, people are really suffering. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that was a big wake up call for me. I had another question, but now I forgot. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, you know, like again, like probably from a lay perspective, this is just a random question. Um, you know, a lot of people would say like eating disorders, you know, they might be influenced by like, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it's not the same so much now, but 10 or 15, 20 years ago, you know, pictures of like supermodels who are really, really thin, you know, that kind of um, idolatry of that type of body in society. Mm. There's obviously been more body positivity messaging out there. Do you think that's made any difference? You mean any difference in the, in the, in a, in a positive direction? Yeah. Yeah. That's or? Right, yeah. Mm. I think we're not. I think we're not there yet, um, and we also don't have the research yet to to make a statement on that. Um, and there's also like a bit of a, a controversy in in terms of you know whether we should be talking so much about body positivity or uh -huh. body neutrality, which is more like having like a neutral oh, relationship towards your body, because it's really difficult for someone who absolutely hates their body, you know. Yeah that one side on the spectrum to go towards the other side of the spectrum right, where we're right. talking about, I love my body. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> you can probably imagine how difficult that would be, you know, to, to all of a sudden change your relationship where those concerns or issues may have, you know, developed over mm. many, 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 many years. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry, so yeah, it's more, more exciting research. And that I think always happens when you and me talk to each other, <laughs> the mind just goes like, Oh, and we should do this research project and we should do that. Yeah. We will talk about that. I'm going to, I'm trying very hard to keep that to the end. Uh, spoiler alert Sorry. or not, I guess. No, that's okay. Uh, I mean, it doesn't matter. We can start talking about it now, but I think that that is something that I want to talk about, which is, um, the dynamics of, of, you know, the four of us, yourself, myself, Dan, 
and Yoop. Um, Dan, I've mentioned on a couple of episodes, Yoop was a was a um, was a guest early on, so people can go back and find him. Um, Dan, who was my PhD supervisor, I think I shared a story a couple of episodes ago about how um, we kind of solved that measurement invariance problem at the mm-hmm. farmers market. <laughs> <laughs> Just As like you in, do. Yeah, exactly. So I, I want to talk about like team dynamics in a little bit because I think we were often coming up with different ideas at coffee shops and stuff like that and then bringing it to the more, um, what would you call the other two? A bit more, what would you call them? Um, real, um, real world. I don't real know. World. Yeah, yeah, realistic. Yeah, pragmatic. <laughs> down down to earth, pragmatic. Pragmatic, yeah. So yes. like pragmatic as in there is no time for that extra thing yes. and where are you going to fund it and blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. So with the eating disorder work, you know, we, um, I think you're, you're in a really interesting position because I, I don't know whether we've like spelled it out for people, but you are, um, you have been part-time clinician working with clients, part-time researcher. So you're in that balancing act where you're sort of set, you know, obviously your research influences your clinical work and, and vice versa. But then there's this time when you start focusing on well-being. obviously together, we all develop the be well plan, um, which again, we covered in the episode with you, but we can go into a little bit now as well. Um, I'm really interested in, um, what, how you saw th- these new well-being techniques that you were sort of finding out about the evidence base for, particularly as we're developing the BWOL plan and how you could see that um, being useful in your clinical work. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> it's a, it's a, it's a big question. And um, as you know, my, my mind kind of likes to go. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Let it go. Um, a couple of things. First, I think, you know, some of the, activities that we we do in, and we have in the be well plan already exist in the in the manuals mm-hmm. but the in, in, the, in, in well in, yeah, in treatment manuals right like so in our first line evidence-based treatments if zbt for example yeah um and they do in in different treatment modalities and I mean that's the beauty about the be well plan that it comes from you know all the different sort of therapeutic approaches but then there are others that don't you know like meaningful pictures for example it's one we should also talk about in a second if you haven't already covered that in in one of the episodes Um, and so I think quite often when you know you 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 do your manualized treatment but obviously you have to consider the person in the context that they are with their with all their strengths and their challenges I really like when you know, once we we had developed the Be Well Planet and everything was there, all those activities were always kind of in the back of my mind mm-hmm. um, and kind of like impacting in a way, the way how I was, you know, delivering an evidence-based treatment. So it was kind of like influenced um, and inter- integrated, I guess, inter- integrated in a way that, yeah. you know, 
yeah, they were just they were just in the back of my mind. And that idea that something different works for everyone and we need to kind of tailor and, and, and find out what works for them. I think that's something I really, you know, I, I really integrated to my work then. So eliciting those strengths in the person and yeah, trying to help them to do more of what's, you know, been good for them in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah, yeah no, it, at all. I, I, I hope so. It made sense to me. Um, <laughs> I think you just touched on a really important point because I think sometimes um, we, we speak in extremes a little bit too much and, mm. and I try and catch myself, but probably I, I don't catch myself all the time where we say like, you know, traditional psychology is just focused on symptoms. Mm. Um, and now well-being's coming along and now people, now clinicians can finally focus on well-being with their clients. And that's obviously not true. So I like what you just said now of like, of that idea that of course, clinicians are focusing on aspects of well-being with their clients. I mean, firstly, I'm pretty sure you agree with that. Yes. Yep. So, I, so would, then, I would, I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> well, and, I, I do. Yeah. Okay. So I really want to get a very clear picture because it's almost a confusing thing where we're saying on one hand, we would say uh, they're not focusing on well-being. On the other, you're saying they do focus on well-being, but then you're somewhere in the middle saying, actually, you know, you could be more intentional with your well-being or what, yes. what is it with, with the, sorry, sorry, with the, like with the integration of the well-being mm. interventions into your clinical practice? Like, can you give up like some cl clearer sort of mm. examples just so we, mm we understand that. Mm -hmm. So I think in an, in an ideal world, um, you would have the two complement each other because the reality is that, I mean, at least here in Australia, <clears throat> a session is 50 minutes and 50 minutes to someone who has a lot of difficulties and brings in a lot of difficulties into a session. is not a really long time. Yep. Right. Um, so you have to focus on something and, Yes, the focus is definitely on, on symptom reduction in that first instance. Mm -hmm. But I guess that quite often I was thinking, oh, if I could, you know, give my client homework of whatever they have identified they're doing of. So say um, they've been starting some sort of like self-compassion work. My mind was like, all right, they, they mentioned that <clears throat> we really need to integrate that into treatment more mm -hmm. and so you know quite often I was actually thinking about the booklet of the be well plan I was thinking this would be awesome if we if we could give that people as you know additional work that they could do at home mm -hmm. and really find out what sort of activities really resonate with them right what I mean is in a way what I mean with we're, we're already integrating some of it is you know for example mindfulness is something um, that I, you know, would quite confidently say a lot of clinical psychologists would already integrate yeah. into their treatment anyway, right? Um, but it's not something that, so when we talk about eating disorders, for example, and we have um, our treatment manual and evidence-based therapy, CBTE, um, it doesn't talk about mindfulness, but, you mm -hmm. know, like that's what I mean. But, but also those manuals have been developed many, many years ago. So yeah. I think an update with a more integrated um, 
well-being approach would be would be amazing um is that kind of answering your yeah question? no i think so so you're yeah and I, and again you've touched on an important point which came up last week i'm going to talk a little bit about that in a sec but that idea of um of course and i think again in in the bad versions of well-being you know being advocating for well-being in clinical services the bad versions are like just focus on well-being and it will be fine <laughs> you know like that's that's the, yeah. the bad over exaggeration mm. of course what you're saying is you only have 15 minutes people that are coming to 50. have sorry sorry yeah. did i say 15 yeah 50 minutes five zero um people have significant you know um uh, you know, symptoms that they're trying to address and to understand mm. and to to mediate in some way. So you think well-being would best, like so, some of these well-being activities you think would be best suited as homework or would you see them in that 50 minutes? I, I would definitely see them in those in those 50 minutes. Uh -huh. um, and then, but in the same way as we do in the Be Well plan, you know, basically teach people the skills and get them to experiment with them, try them out come back did it work it didn't okay. work if it works how can we make that a habit um yeah that's yeah, how okay, I, cool. I could i could absolutely see it i could also see it i mean i could see it in many ways you know i could see it as a step before entering treatment um we've been talking about that already too you know there's there's so much you could do i could also see it as a as a you know relapse prevention in a way yeah. after treatment i could see it as an add-on i could see it in so many different mm. ways mm. um that are so beneficial but maybe i give you an example of um of an activity that you know i certainly i think didn't hear about and quite often when we when we present on it um it's not something that people have heard about and that's meaningful pictures Right. And you're smiling <laughs> like, yeah. So that's, I think, do you want to introduce what I did? No, please. <laughs> no, you I mean, I'm happy it. to. Yeah, I'm happy yes. to. So yeah. So basically, yeah, uh, meaningful pictures is a really simple activity that we use. Um, I can't remember the exact reference of where it originates, but I think it has something to do with, um, Michael Steger and, and, um, Todd Kashtan. Todd, I think has come up basically in almost every episode so far, Great. <laughs> um, where they were, they were interested in measuring, um, sources of purpose in people's lives. And it was basically too difficult to get people to write that down. I think because, you, you know, generally if someone says what gives you purpose in life, you don't actually have that prepared in your mind. It's a too sort of it's, it's out there. It's something that we don't often think about. And so I think this was probably in the early two thousands, they gave everyone, um, uh, a disposable cameras and basically said, go out and, um, take photos of things that are meaningful for you. And, um, basically, so I think people have then tested that as an, as an intervention itself, but, but basically that's where we, um, that's one of the things that's in the be well plan, as you're saying, Katina, this idea of, um, either looking back and reflecting on photos that you've taken or, you know, proactively going out and taking photos like, like in that study that we just mentioned. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the background really. Right. So mostly the self-reflection one is what we go for. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, like those support people or things that are meaningful to you in your life is something that, you know, we do, we do cover in treatment and we do obviously integrate, 
but doing it in such an intentional way that you would say, all right, let's have a look at your camera roll. <clears throat> yeah. Is there a picture of something that is meaningful and really important for you? And what does that look like? That is an example that I did integrate into my sessions um, and an activity that I haven't heard before. And I sometimes then, you know, encourage the person to, you know, write a, a quote or like a statement that's really meaningful for them, make that a screensaver or, you know, like the photo to go when they're having a really difficult time. And it's such a simple activity. We should just all know about it because, you know, we, are all sometimes in meetings where we're incredibly stressed afterwards or we have some sort of interaction that brings up unpleasant emotions or just a you know difficult day or whatever challenge it is and that idea of taking out your phone and looking into your camera roll and really focusing and reflecting on that picture mm. and on why that is important to you and what you actually have in your life I think is something we should all know. Yeah, absolutely. I think, look, I think Samsung and Apple have stolen our thunder basically because now they've put that as a function in most iPhone, in most smartphones, right? So that's actually pretty cool. Other, obviously, people aren't intentionally, like I think the self-reflection part is yes. is a huge part of it, is mm -hmm. actively looking back for sources of meaning. That is yes. part of it. Um, but I think a lot of people can resonate with that idea of finding a surprise photo from the last year or what you did, you know, that photo you took on yeah. this day last year or whatever, it, it often does bring back, mm -hmm. um, really strong positive emotions. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think attaching that then to a sense of, uh, a meaning or, of, or some sort of positive resource for your mental health that, that makes it all the more powerful. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think that's a really nice example that, that you can, you know, it doesn't take any time really. Oh. What does it take with a client? Like three like minutes or something. Minute. Yeah. Two minutes, yeah. Yeah, okay. And yeah, and it's funny that you said relapse prevention because that's my 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 last guest was um was Chiara uh, Ruini from Bologna and that's exactly what they've been working on. Basically um integrating CBT sort of traditional CBT with positive psychology interventions. Mm -hmm. Um mostly focused on improving um eudaimonic well-being. Mm -hmm. Um, for the purpose specifically of relapse prevention. And I think they've right. had some really great success with mm -hmm. that. So um, that would be really cool to see that applied into other, into other disciplines. And I guess um, my ears perked up, I think, when you were talking about eating disorders when we first met, because I knew um, from my work on the dual continual model that eating disorders were one of those um, mental disorders where the correlation of the symptoms where um, uh, they are almost zero, they correlate almost zero with the symptoms of well-being. So that's kind of like one of the mental disorders where um, the dual continual model is the most true. So that, that you know the idea that your level of distress is not necessarily indicative of your level of well-being. It's basically never as true as when you're working in mental disorders, and and that's thanks to some of our friends uh, in the Netherlands. And, and like, you know, can you speak to that a little bit? Is that something that you, you've seen? Like you, you kind of mentioned before something that I think is confusing to people that sometimes some of these eating disorder symptoms, um, that, 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 um, that people almost enjoy, like, what did you, how did you say it? That they almost, um, <clears throat> they like them. They like those symptoms. They don't want to lose them. And so what I, what I mean by that is that, um, 
a person with an eating disorder would typically not want to get rid of their symptoms. And now again, like we really have to differentiate differentiate the different disorders here. So when I talk about anorexia, for example, um, when they're dieting or not eating or restricting their calorie intake, that actually makes them feel good. Okay. To you and to me and to someone without the disorder, that wouldn't make sense at all because we feel hangry if we don't eat, right? Like it's it's that it's that really unpleasant feeling that you do not want to feel um, and you can solve by eating. But what a person with anorexia quite often reports is that it actually makes them feel happy. And they literally say that in the session. By introducing the idea of regular eating, which is one of the first steps in treatment to get them to eat regularly and adequately, um, you're taking away something from me, one of the few things that makes me happy. Mm. So it is a really interesting one because it it really is that the the symptoms of the disorder, um, yeah, are impacting their their feelings of happiness. Yeah, mm. okay. and it's actually now reflecting on it, like it's literally the word. Like you know, if we talk researching happy, like they say, it makes me feel happy. One of the few things. Mm. Mm. Far out. Okay, and so that's why that. Uh, that category now again coming to the dual continua of high eating disorder symptoms high levels of mental illness and high levels of well-being is really fascinating and yeah it's it's an, an area I think we really need to explore further in future studies yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's you... almost, sorry, on yeah. that point again, it's almost like you actually want to reduce the levels of well-being yeah. because yeah. they are maintaining the symptoms of the illness. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because mm. you're almost you're almost saying if you're someone who has, um, I mean, I've basically only ever spoken about that in a positive sense, like despite you know, the presence of mental illness symptoms, you, you have, you are able to maintain a high level of well-being. Obviously well-being is obviously more than just happiness, but you're almost pointing or alluding to the fact that it might be part of the problem in a sense that Mm. you have high levels of, of happiness along with the symptoms. Mm. Yeah. Um, In very plain terms. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Citing any literature. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. We're obviously simplifying it, but, um, yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Mm. And then how does purpose, like, because I guess if we're thinking, like, if we want to think about well-being in the kind of the simple, you know, the eudaimonic and the hedonic, let's say we've got happiness on that one side and, and, and purpose on the other, in this scenario of someone coming to you, I mean, it's often sort of young females, if I'm not mistaken, um, or no? Yes, the majority, although really important as well, I think um, that, that perception quite often of the, of the um, you know, I guess community is that it only affects like young females. We actually see it in any sort of age group and any sort of gender, like yeah. it can okay. literally affect anyone. So I really just want to highlight that because it's it's quite often that conception that, oh, yes, young females. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. Happy to be, yes, okay, happy to be but yes. uh, corrected more than happy. You c- keep it coming. Um, 
No, I lost. You lost your thread. No, no, that's okay. Sorry. So you're a bit. No, 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 that's okay. Like I, I think you're kind of describing that sort of heartbreaking scenario of um, nothing makes me happy. This is something that makes me happy. Yeah. You're taking this away from me in a in a way. Yeah. Um, can purpose be there to balance that out? Like, can that meaningful pictures activity like does that have a role there, or is it, <clears throat> is it not that simple? No, it's definitely not. It's, it's definitely not that simple. Um, I mean, it's a very, very complex disorder. And when it comes to that meaning and purpose side of things, I was just thinking about that. It's almost like actually, so quite often people describe their eating disorder, again, anorexia mostly, um, as their friend. So it's actually the disorder that gives them a purpose mm. it's kind of like you know when I was talking about that voice at and not you know it's not about hearing voices or anything but it's that strong idea in your mind that it tells you yes what you're doing is right and you should just continue to do that um, and continue to not eat and see how it makes you feel happy um, they quite often report that they almost like build that bond um, yeah I mean I, I, I certainly had people um, describing it as their best friend the friend who was there when no one else was there. Really? Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. heartbreaking. <clears throat> yeah, that's, um, yeah, okay. That is something that I think people have sort of played around with a little bit. That idea that um, a lot of these topics in well-being, like purpose, like meaning, uh, sorry, like happiness, um, they don't necessarily come with like a moral good. Um, so you can be mm -hmm. happy from bullying others. You can find mm -hmm. purpose from, I don't know, whatever, harassing others. I don't know. That's the same mm -hmm. example. But so that's an interesting part. I think that's a mm -hmm. part of nuance as far as I'm aware, unless I've completely missed a whole bunch of literature on this. I don't think the, the well-being space has gotten to that point yet of mm -hmm. saying, you know, I think we often, if, if at least we'll just leave it at that, that we often just assume that having a sense of purpose is good full stop. Mm -hmm. Um when actually, like you're saying, there is sort of a, a morality that has to be considered. Mm. Um, so very, very interesting. Very interesting. Anything else on the integration of well-being into clinical practice from you? Anything that we like that you've we haven't covered? No, I think I, I don't think so. Lots of ideas and lots of work to do in that space, and yeah, lots of new exciting research projects that are waiting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. all right. <laughs> without cool. without funding. Yeah, <laughs> but we're, yeah. We're well, working on that. Yeah, exactly. So if someone's listening to this and they happen to have a lot of money that they'd like to spend on this important <laughs> research, please please let us know. I won't hold my breath, but. Um, what I would love, you know, so I think um, from my perspective and I think from Yup's perspective for sure, you know, we've, we covered this a little bit in our episode, but, you know, we were kind of two guys who, um, you know, within our team, obviously, like we're, we're part of a team, it's not just us, but we're really struggling for, um, um, now I'm forgetting the, what would you call it? Like legitimacy something like that, struggling for legitimacy. So, you know, we were mostly working on projects, so we didn't have very much time for research. We were obviously quite junior, like extremely junior, basically. Um, and then, you know, kind of a stroke of luck for us, yourself, Dan, and, and Mike Kyrgios, who you mentioned, Mike, before, that's Professor Mike Kyrgios, come to Adelaide, show a real interest in, in the well-being work, and then we we're able to basically form this this um, hybrid team where we basically act as if we're a team, even though we work for different places. Um, 
I we didn't just act as if we were a team. Well, no, that's what I mean. As in, we 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 were a team, um, and that was kind of hard for people, I think, to get their head around in a way because it's like, how are you, like, you and Contina, do you guys work together? Uh, yes and no, you know, <laughs> the, you know. Anyway, whatever. A very flexible sort of scenario, I guess, that we were technically employed by different people, but we acted as a team. And I would, it would be cool to hear, you know, what what do you think worked about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and 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 is that something you've seen in in previous, um, you know, research environments? Yeah, where 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 should I start? Where should I stop? I'm sorry, okay. that was probably it, a terrible question. Yeah, it, no, that was a really good question, and I think it just um yeah, it just it brings up a lot of positive emotions, <laughs> happiness, good. Um, no, definitely not something we've experienced in the past. And um, we were actually just talking about it the other day because we presented, as you know, on our work, um, you know, with you guys here at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And we had like so much feedback and so much interest, um, but also so much like, wow, like these are big things um, that you've done. And, you know, I always had to reiterate this would have not been possible without such an amazing team. And I think it would have also not been possible just within a pure academic research setting because you usually just don't have the manpower to do that or the funding or the time or whatever it is. So to me, this was the perfect combination. It was just, or it is, um, not that it was it didn't end still continuing so it is the perfect combination to be doing rigorous research that has a real world impact and that can be sustainable Mm. because and i think you you talked about that before quite often we have those research projects and develop programs and you know do our RCTs, uh, randomized controlled trials, and then they're effective and great. We have a product, but, oh, we have no more funding and we have no more money. So what do we do? Um, so all of the work and, you know, like even continuing all that work and doing those continuous iterations of the Be Well plan, different formats, different delivery styles in different populations continuing to evaluate that would not be possible without without this um, combination. Mm. And I think it's it's that's really beautiful and really unique. And I'm, you know, forever grateful that we have that. And I think <clears throat> also on top of that, or maybe underlying whatever that wherever that sits, it's just that it's um it's a perfect combination of skills but also of personalities in a way and I think you know that plays such a such an important role and I think with you you were talking about those massive projects that you did and you know like that must be driving on something and having amazing people that you really love working with each other in your team just makes work so much fun and honestly makes yeah research happy in a way (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Just to come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're yeah. doing a good plug for me there. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And, and I wonder, you know, obviously I haven't 
ever like really worked at a uni working with you guys is as close as it's come for me. And I think it was a very nice place to start. That's obviously <laughs> not how many research teams, I don't think, I think more research teams are very, uh, are much more hierarchical mm-hmm. um, because you have like a lab head who is um, kind of rules the rest of the top down, like rule, rules the rest of the team in a top down way. Like, would you agree with that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then, and like, and in a way, like, it's and that's a challenge. I think I was going to say you can understand it in a sense because they're the person who often like wins the grants and and um, you know provides strategic leadership and these sorts of things. But I guess in that scenario, it's very hard for people who aren't at the top of the hierarchy to actually climb up the steps themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think we had a, a much more sort of egalitarian sort of setup. Yeah. Oh, sorry, were you going to say something? No, but like, yeah, yeah, no, actually I was. <laughs> what you're saying there, I mean, that in and of itself creates a specific environment, right? Like um, a specific environment of um, competitiveness or, you know, wh- whatever it is. And, I, you know, like working in, in academia, unfortunately, that is the reality. But I think that's also one of the beauties in, in our team and why all of this worked so well or works so well because there is no hierarchy and there is no competitiveness. And, you know, like we support each other and we have those ideas and thrive on those ideas. And sometimes we go a bit too far in one direction and need other team members to hold us back a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's just exciting. Yeah. Okay. And I wonder, like, I think you guys had that, um, already and and i think then you and i were sort of able to join and, and participate in that kind of culture so i wonder if you could say a few words about like mike's influence um i will hope to have him on in the future he's kind of he's agreed but he's since retired has just been like island hopping across greece so eventually <laughs> yeah. when he has wi-fi <laughs> when he has wi-fi that's um reliable i'll catch him for an episode <laughs> yeah um, you should <laughs> yeah absolutely but i i wonder if you could say a few words on um his his role because I think a few people have previously mentioned like the important role of mentorship yeah. um, and how much of a difference that's made for their careers especially as a young researcher mm. yeah huge huge difference and um, you know one of, one of the things Mike would say is that um, yeah he, he I, I don't quote me on that Dan would be way better place to really um, tell you the exact phrase but along the lines of um, you know, basically adopting students in a way. And, um, and and really, you know, that's where that idea of, you know, working working together and you, it's almost like becoming family, right? Like, so it's, it, it, it's, it's not only about the work, but it's also about the relationships, which mm. ties in beautifully to... Um, to well-being and 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 building and and having those really strong and important relationships and that to me is is something very unique and something very special and yeah I will never forget um, the moment when he basically brought you and Yup and Dan and me into his room and he was like then now you guys do. <laughs> And I mean, look, look at this now, how cool. And, and yeah, he created this and, and enabled this. And I'm pretty sure he was, uh, yeah, in the back of his mind. It's like, yeah, this has got to work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, and it's, um, it, it is meaningful to have um, someone quite senior who basically believes in you, you know, like that yeah. does give you confidence, right? It does. 
help you to grow. Um, I think in some of those early meetings, I probably didn't actually say anything or, you know, if anything at all, not much, but by the end of a couple of meetings, you know, I felt absolutely encouraged. I, I was definitely the most junior in the team, but encouraged to share ideas, correct people, you know, mm. insert myself forever. And it makes a massive difference and it comes from mm. leadership. And I think like you say, it it's really not, does. it's not possible in a very hierarchical structure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Interesting. I like what you said sort of about that idea of adopting students. I, I just want to point out, I guess, how much that is not the norm in mm. this research world. I think where PhD students are basically like not, this is not every scenario, but often again, this is maybe a bad caricature, but like kind of free labor, you know, like, uh, you know, you hear things like, Oh, get a student to do that. That kind of thing of like, that's just a menial thing. I've got mm. some students who will just jump on that, whatever, get them mm. to do it. I don't mean that like, that's probably not the norm. I think probably, well, I'm not sure whether you think it's the norm or not. I, I hope it's not the norm. It might be more common than not. Yeah, it might be. I, I can't talk from personal experience. I had the most amazing supervisors and mentors in, in my life and I'm forever grateful. And that's what I want to, to give back. Um, mm. And that's what I think is, is important to us. And yeah, it's an important part of work and how you work together. Um, yeah. Cool. So yeah, I, it's worth mentioning, I guess. I just want to bring it up, not because um, to say that we we were able to do a lot of uh, cool work, I think, having just basically been strangers from going from strangers to within like two or three years, um, you know, doing a lot of good things with the Be Well Plan and randomized controlled trials and publications. And then, and then ultimately um, submitting ourselves for that South, South Australian Science Award, um, you know, which for us is a big deal. And that all came again. Sounds just, good. Innovator of the year. Come on. Yeah, well, absolutely. South Australia. Okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, it's funny how just, I guess I want to give an example of sort of the way we worked as a team. Um, do you want to give the story of, of, of bringing, you know, you, you notice this thing and you bring it to the team? Of the award? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. How did that actually happen? Um, let me try and remember. I think it's probably some of the emails that you get, you know, about you should apply for this, you should apl apply for that. And there was this thing, and I think we've talked about it the year before already. Um, so there is um, the South Australian Science and Excellence Awards every year. And you can, um, I guess, you can nominate yourself as a team or as an individual. Mm -hmm. And whenever these things come up, I'm like, oh yeah, we should, we should try it. You know, why not? <laughs> and I think when was it? So it was, I'm totally confused with, with dates now. Okay. So no that idea. was last year, 2022, the year before I said, oh yeah, we should do it. Um, and probably you and Dan were like, yeah, when's the deadline? And I said, oh, it's in two weeks. And you were probably like, yeah, we can do that, Katima. <laughs> the two were like, you yeah, know, we can't. <laughs> uh, last year then was a little bit more organized. I think it was two weeks. And we definitely said, yes, we, we should definitely apply. 
Um, well, I think you said the two years before was two days. You meant I think you said two, two days. Weeks. Yes. Oh yes. no, two so days. Thought, Let's two do days. this Sorry. in two days. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. So the other one was then two weeks. Um, and yeah, I can't remember exactly, but you would have been like, "Yes, Katina, we should definitely do it." Tell me when, when we should work on it. Um, and so we went on that journey. And of course, as it usually turns out, it's way more work than you expect that it is. But it was a beautiful opportunity for us to actually consolidate all the work that we've done yeah. and the impact that we had. And we always talk about you need to celebrate your successes, but I think we're not still doing a good enough job as a, as a team. Um, so bringing that kind of application together where <clears throat> we had to, you know, submit all our CVs, but then also, you know, talk about the real world impact that it had and consolidating all the different publications and grants that we've um, had coming from zero in the beginning where we said, oh, yeah, I think we have to establish ourselves as a team now. And then looking back and like, yeah, actually, that's exactly what we did over the last few years was was pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, and absolutely. very special. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, I sometimes feel Dan, I feel bad for Dan and you because when we talk to each other, we make them sound like these grumpy, um, um, <laughs> pessimistic guys. I think they're actually <laughs> extremely <laughs> optimistic, yes, but a bit more realistic. And I think they're we're very all, realistic. We're <laughs> much more optimistic and much less realistic. So that's kind of the way that it balances out. That is hundred percent accurate. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So just so it's just so it's clear, <laughs> um, um, we we were finalists for the award, so that was kind of like top three. We we're extremely proud of that. Uh, unfortunately, we got beaten by a guy who came up with the world's most um, accurate clock. I think, if I can remember correctly, it could like predict. It would accurately tell the time to within like a fraction of a second in like a hundred million years or something like that. It's whatever. It's very pretty cool. Like you have to say pretty cool, but um, yeah, pretty cool. I mean, anyway. but, 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 um, you know, having been there as finalists coming from the area of like psycho psychology or mental health well, that's true. and well being, like that was a big thing. Um, you know, it's, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I guess. Cause it's like, it was like a STEM award. So it was really, that's right. I think obviously psychology exists within STEM, but it doesn't really get the time of day. I don't think it's STEM. You know, people think of engineering and technology yes. and, um, you know, people in lab coats and, and wearing safety goggles and stuff. Yes. Um, and, you know, on that night, the winner of the, the biggest award, which was, I mean, there's kind of two awards. There's the innovator of the year, which we were the finalists. And then there's scientist of the year. Uh, the person who won that was Professor Maria Macredis, also from Samri. So I'll just mention her because she has just been um, um, taken up the role as the director of Samri. So that's really, really exciting. Um, so anyway, just she's not going to hear this, but look her up. She's what she's done for um, for uh, baby health, um, particularly around breastfeeding, has just been incredible. So. Um, yeah, congratulations to Maria. I look, really look forward to her being the new boss. As a side note, pretty um, amazing. You should get her into one of your episodes. Yeah, absolutely. I actually yeah. should. Actually, I should. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Cool. I think Samri was rated like top forty 
um, scientific institutes in the world. I don't know where that was a couple of years ago. I don't know where it stands today, but um, right. you know, definitely being a director, it you know, I look forward to it under her stewardship, basically. But um, so yeah, if she was listening, there you go, Maria. Um, <laughs> which she wasn't, but anyway, um, so, you know, talking about lab culture or team culture, I think we have this funny thing, which some people would look at in a negative sense where like our work lives and our personal lives are not very clearly defined and people would hear that and think like, oh, you're a work addict or like, you, you know, you're, you're, you're a workaholic or you're, um, you know, you don't have boundaries, but I, I don't think it works like that for us. Like, do you want to talk a little bit about this? The fact that your personal life and your work life were, are kind of like really close and, and in <laughs> such a way that, you know, Dan and I can be talking about um, our kids running around at the farmer's market, but then it somehow turns on to measurement invariance and then comes straight back to um, what you're doing on the weekend. Like, do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there, there are definitely no clear boundaries. I mean, particularly when I think about this award, you know, I think about you coming over at night and, you know, we're sitting in front of our computers frantically yeah, trying true. to finish this application or, you know, other nights where we're on the phone and, you know, you mentioned the water closure study before and talking about Qualtrics and how to solve this problem or how to solve that problem. Um, yeah. Yeah, luckily, luckily, our, our partners are all in for that and <laughs> encouraged us to do that. Um, I think it's that's what makes it so special. Um, and I. I don't know, but like, you know, we, we, we don't do this stuff for. Um, or at least I, I don't, you know, for the success or for the publication or for mm -hmm. the whatever. I, I, I do it um, to have a real and a meaningful impact on the life of people, who, whoever that is, and, and to, have, to make a change, a positive change, um, however small that is. And it's it's passion. It's where, where passion comes in again and... Um, Yeah, is it is it is it? Would you call that work-life balance? Sitting there at night doing that sort of stuff. I'm not sure. I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that it's Saturday night right now. Well, but, uh... that's probably <laughs> yeah, it's probably the best example. Um, but this is bringing me joy, right? Um, it's it's me bringing too. me happiness, and it's um, yeah. Why would I not do that? Yeah, yeah, and maybe that's maybe that's the clarification is that so much. Of so much I think of the researchers world or their life, you know, there are boring things like ethic applications and paperwork and mm. those sorts of things. That's probably not the stuff you do late at night. I think you do the no. bits, the passion bits at night, yeah. like, or like, or whenever, like the outside of work hours kind of, yeah. it's, it's a passion part of, of your role. And I think that's where you get energy. Like you're saying, you get joy yes. from these things. So yeah. um, you kind of want to do them anyway. Yeah. And I think that's a really good, that's a really good point. Is that, is that energy bit, right? Like, is that, is it giving you energy or is it taking energy away? Mm. If it's giving you energy at night to do X, Y, Z, you know, like sit here on a Saturday night and, and do podcasts, why, why should we not be doing that? And yeah, I know what you mean in terms of um, boundaries where people would say, yeah, but where's the boundary? Um, if it's not having a negative impact on, anything whatsoever whether that's any negative impact on your work or 
on your relationships or <clears throat> anything like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just yeah. makes it. Yeah. It just makes work so much fun. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's kind of like yeah, it's kind of like it's work and a hobby at the mm. same time. In a in mm-hmm. a way, I don't know. People yes. ask me like, "What are your hobbies?" It is kind of my work. It is you know, it is a hobby. Maybe that. Yeah. You know, I should start bowling or something. I don't know, but. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. I might steal <laughs> that from you as well. <laughs> bowling? Huh? No, not that. Work yeah, no. as a hobby. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously like, yeah, if you were, if you were like staying home on a Saturday night to do ethics applications, like I'd be worried then. Oh yes. Um, but if it's not. like thinking of ideas and writing, you know, writing, doing things that you find energy, I don't know for yourself, you really enjoy writing. Hmm. Why not do that? Um, Anyway, cool. I think we've covered that. So what I want to do, it's already been an hour and 10 minutes far out. What I want to do. I told you we'll sit here until 12. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, the, well, all right. So what I wanted to bring up with the last one was the, the border closure study. And so mm-hmm. the tagline of the, the podcast is um, stories behind the studies. And I think this is an interesting one where it, there's a very applied um, background to why we mm-hmm. just did this study. We don't have to go into like the full, full, full story details and stuff like that. Obviously just share what's comfortable, but this is one that was completely out of the box for us. It's mm-hmm. something that, um, we had probably never considered. Um, but let's talk about it. Cause I think it's, this is, it's, it's been such a strange, um, research experience, I think for us. Would you say it's fair to say? So, yes. I mean, I haven't really started with a, a sentence, but if I'll just lead in, I guess, basically you had become aware of, um, so you're obviously, you've migrated to Australia. You've got family around the world. Some were here, some were overseas. Um, and during the COVID lockdown, uh, COVID early days of the COVID pandemic, Australia was one of those countries that closed its border. Um, we're not saying whether that was right or wrong. I think what became very obvious to you from, from what you were seeing around the world was there's a very significant mental health um, consequence of that type of, um, of that type of initiative, closing, you know, putting a hard border closure. This is now the national border that like forgetting state border closures. International border. Did I say that? Yeah. No, oh, I'm yeah. saying we're referring to the international. Border. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Sorry yeah. if I um, slipped up there. Um, and I think this is one that you were kind of saying, this is, this is how it goes. You know, we're in a team meeting and you're sort of saying, I'm seeing this thing. I think there's an issue here. We should study it. We, yes. we, and then, you know, obviously the, the more pragmatic of us sort of say like with what time, with what, you know, with what blah, blah, blah. Fair, fair enough. And then I think yourself and I were sitting at the coffee shop, uh, <laughs> local crowd. It's the one that was near our house. Um, I was there today actually. So, so still enjoying it. Um, yeah. Lonely without you guys, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we were sitting there and you kind of showed me these Facebook pages that you'd come across, mm. um, which was full of, I guess, what were they like support groups? Um, like, do you want to t- take it up from there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, first of all, this study would have never happened without you saying we should definitely do it. Um, so I think that's, you know, how, how, how we kind of like work as a team as well. But yeah, you're right. I um, 
and you might come to that point later about me being so hesitant about media. Um, and this is a different scenario. So I was impacted myself because my parents were separated because um, my mum made it into Australia just before the borders closed and my dad had his flight booked, but then the borders closed and he couldn't come in. And so in the beginning, it was that idea of, oh, yeah, okay, you know, it's just a few months. It's okay. He'll come and join us a bit later. So he was going to retire at the end of the year. So it was really difficult to leave earlier. And yeah, long story short, two years later, he then finally made it into the country. But all that time, my parents were separated. Um, and so with that, I joined different Facebook groups of people who had been impacted by the border closures as well. That was just the way how you could get the most um, recent up-to-date information about whether anything has changed. But it also formed like a huge um, support for people in a way. But what happened was that I became the witness of so many people who were struggling so badly and were so distressed. And we're talking about, I think when I showed you the groups, you were like, Katina, these are like 50,000 people in one group. Yeah. And there were like 10 or 15 groups here. Um, and we were saying, it, it, it's, you know, you, you see those stories here and there in the media a little bit. But really, we need to quantify that. We need to do some research on that. Um, and I absolutely remember that day when we were walking and he said, yes, we have to do it. Yeah. yeah. And then at, at night after hours, <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's start this. Yeah. Um, and yeah, absolutely. And I think that was the big wake up call. So, you know, I guess this is going to be the story behind ACE, this study. That's where we're going for now. I think that's when it became a real possibility when it was like, oh, wow, there are these multiple mm -hmm. Facebook groups with many like tens of thousands of people who've been affected this is a real problem like you know this is a real well it looks like a real problem we mm -hmm. need to quantify what we're mm -hmm. seeing um and so on the weekends we got to work basically yeah it's that like you see that thing happening in that moment and the the research mind goes we we need to do something about it and i guess that's um that's what we did. And then, you know, after those dry ethics application and what do we need to ask and can we make sure we cover every single scenario, which was actually quite complicated because there were so many different scenarios we had to think of. People could have been here in Australia wanting to leave the country. That wasn't possible. Being overseas, wanting to enter the country, which was really difficult. They could have been family members, but they could have been also Australians stuck abroad. Mm -hmm. um, so there were just those many different layers that we had to think through and make sure we cover everything. I, it was quite an intense process to set the survey up to make sure um, we can capture everyone in the in the in an accurate way. Yeah, it was by far, I think, the most complicated mm. um, survey. Like, because for those who aren't really aware, we use this online survey tool. We were using something called Qualtrics, where you can put in logic. Like, so it's like if if they say this, then show them these questions. But if they answered that, then show them these other questions. Mm. And so we had to get. <laughs> it was so. <laughs> so difficult to make this work for all those multiple scenarios, like you said. So whether, 
you know, I'm in Australia trying to get out or I'm out of Australia trying to get in or I'm waiting for my friend or partner or cousin or whatever to come over or I'm trying to help them get out. There were all these different scenarios, like you say. Mm -hmm. um, so then eventually, and with Dan and Yoop's help, of course, um, we we um, were able to pull that survey together. And Terry as well. We should mention Terry as well. Absolutely. Um, who's now off doing her clinical. No, she's already finished her clinical master's. Yes. She's now working full-time as a clinician. Yeah. Go Terry. Um, then what? So we, we had this survey ready. And then it got really exciting. <laughs> we launched the survey in the morning. I think it was 9am. Into those Facebook groups, right? Into the, yes. So that I think was another like quite unique um, recruitment strategy was that we actually posted into these groups and say that we we see this, what's happening and have you been affected or have you been negatively affected um, by the international border closure here in Australia? Um, we'd love to hear from you. And I don't know when you made your prediction, but at one I point you made, exactly. yeah, tell, tell me. <laughs> when well, was that? Just about to post. So there was like, maybe say there was 10 Facebook groups that we were, that we were um, going to post into and we'd had to go and get all the um, permissions from the group admins. And obviously after we'd had done ethics and all that sort of thing. And I remember I was at Flinders that day and, um, and you guys had to go to a meeting or you were lecturing or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm about to send this off. And when I see you after your lecture, that's when I said, oh, no, you're talking about a different protection. I was basically saying, next time I see you, we'll have 300 people having had completed this survey. And you were obviously laughing like this is completely ridiculous. But actually, a step, a couple steps before that, you're right. I was saying we're going to get like 10,000 people are going to do this survey. That was my prediction. Yeah. And right. you, were, you guys, I think, were the... At that time, you took the role of the more realistically optimistic person. I think you were aiming for like maybe a thousand or two thousand. You thought that that would be quite. I quite think amazing. a thousand. Yeah. Yes, and fast forward, um, and I will never forget that day. Basically, at night, I think you and I were like updating core tricks on the, um, like I don't know, like every minute. Um, but at the end of the day, we had. 500 completed surveys. So that was within one day, a survey of 30 minutes without any incentive. And I think that to, to us at least was pretty unheard of. Um, like if data collection would always go that fast, research would move along a lot faster. Um, and it just continued like that. It continued, like responses continued to come in so that in the end, we did have more than 8,000 people starting the survey and more than, or I think almost 4,000 completed it. And that was, I think, within two weeks or something ridiculous. So there was this incredible, like, um, need to have a voice and to have a say and to mm. be heard as well amongst these people. Yeah, exactly. And so I think we're, we're sort of laughing, you know, at a very serious topic, right? So please, mm. uh, please to the people that are listening, understand that we know that this is a very serious thing. We're laughing more at just the pragmatics of the, of the research land, you know, that mm. idea that we've never seen recruitment like this. Yeah. So we're absolutely touching on something that people were feeling unheard about. Mm. Um, because of course, at the time, you know, the general consensus was, you know, the border closure 
must be done, mm. um, you know, for the reasons of, of the virus and, and, you know, people can have their opinions about that. But I think those who are really strongly negatively affected um, were overlooked. And so I think the research yeah. study came at the right time to give them that voice. Um, so now, and then I guess to cut a long story short, we've done now three waves of that measurement. So we, mm -hmm. we, you're, you made a good point that it was a very long survey because yeah. in a way we, we wanted to make sure that we weren't missing vital information. So we did mm. include quite a lot in our, in our assessment. And um, we obviously wanted to measure distress and well-being as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've talked a lot about, yeah, the, um, the scenarios that people were finding themselves in, because I think that was also important mm. at that time to understand, yeah. wasn't mostly people trying to get out, were they trying to get in, you know, that kind of thing. But also the impact then of of well being, um, and on and on distress, and so we measured that basically in three um, phases. I think it was like mm -hmm. at, at a certain time. Then it was like was it three months after three six, months, six months, and twelve month follow up. Three, six, and twelve mm. month follow up. Yeah, so, that, oh, so that's four waves. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Counting it. Yeah. Mm. Um, we haven't had a chance to analyze and, and to publish that sort of follow-up data, but we have published the, the baseline results. So do you want to sort of take us through that? Yeah. I mean, I, in a way it wasn't surprising, but in a way it was surprising. Like the levels of distress were like beyond any clinical cutoff that we have seen in any other population during that time that were severely distressed as well. So say, you know, healthcare workers, um, people in quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. So there was just this extreme distress um, and, and low levels of mental well-being, obviously, as well, that we saw in that group that's been largely um, overlooked and not really had a had, had a voice and, and had a say. And that's, I guess that was our argument, like, you know, this should be taken into consideration in future policy decisions as well, because we are talking about a large number of people and we're talking about very, very severe distress in a way how that is um, impacting on them. And I think in a way, you know, the, the quantitative results are one thing, but what really striked us as well was the large number of people. So what we did at the end of the survey, we put in a comment box and said, if there's anything else that hasn't been captured, feel free to share it or if you want to share your story. We had more than 2,000 people sharing their stories in that. And I think Matt, you and me started going through and um, that it just was just heartbreaking. And so we get um, got two experts, thanks to Candice and, and Ema here, involved to analyze that data. And that just backed up that quantitative data with the, with the stories of the people and the way how their lives been turned upside down because they couldn't be there for the birth of their child or for an important wedding or for you know the, the illness of a close family member for whatever important milestones that they missed um, and many many different other different things and that was really yeah it was really impactful um, to to read that mm, 
yeah no it was it was, it was hard to read basically it was mm. really hard to read and and it was an interesting topic because it's obviously a bit of a controversial mm-hmm. subject it was i think really hard for us to communicate in a way that mm. you know we were kind of saying we're not passing judgment on this policy whether it's right or wrong you know we have our personal views but this is not this is not that this is the idea that we need to be evaluating policy implications on multiple outcomes it can't just be on on one and mental health outcomes often come from any policy mm-hmm. um decision um you know that i think that was really hard for people they were basically like they they took a very skeptical view i think in general like oh so you're you're saying that the border closures are bad um i don't think that's what we're trying to say here the idea is that there are if there are positives, there are sometimes also, you know, side effect negative mm. and that we need to be doing something for it, not necessarily opening the borders, but, um, you know, offering, offering support for people who mm. have been negatively impacted mm. or, or something along mm. those lines. And as well, considering it. So when we're considering health as in physical health, the argument that we made as well is that we should be considering mental health as well we can't see those two at separate as separate mm. they are not mm. separate yeah no absolutely and mm. so i think um yeah i really look forward if we have to find the time but if, i think we just discussed yes. it during the week as a team the four of us again let um you know that's something that we need we have an obligation to get out there because i think um you know you had an honors student last year who was able to yeah. analyze some of that follow-up data and it was um, interesting. It looked like for those who were negatively affected, um, there was, even if their, um, even if their scenario had changed, like say they were trying to enter the country, even if they had entered the country, I think a lot of that distress had actually remained. Mm. Um, and so you can imagine that particularly when you read the, um, the qualitative insights of, you know, if you've missed, if you've missed the death of, of someone, or if you've missed a key milestone in life, you know, having then traveled doesn't actually make up for what Mm -hmm. you've lost. Um, so really, really powerful. I'll I'll put some links to those studies, um, in the show notes of the episode that people can catch up. But, um, yeah, we, I guess it'll be really interesting to see what happens now that we've got this 12 month follow up to see, um, how people have been tracking over Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because we um, we still had a three, six, and twelve month follow. I think almost eight hundred people completing it. And like, just if any <laughs> anyone has completed it who's listening, like, thank you so much. I think mm. there's a huge shout out for all those people who have completed those surveys because that would have also not been easy to complete such a survey in 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 that situation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, and and you know, the one that always sticks in my mind of of um the qualitative results was the one around, um, you know, to think that it, this had such a powerful impact. You know, I think it was really easy. Like I said, to, to go very right back to the very start of the episode, you've moved your whole life around the world. I've moved literally down the street. Um, if you're someone in my shoes, obviously I have family overseas, but the, the large, large, large majority of my life is within Australia. It's even within South Australia. Um, I could very easily not be affected by, you know, some of the, by the border closures. I basically wasn't affected by the border closures. Um, whereas for someone whose entire life 
is overseas and they might be the only person in their family living in Australia. Well, they had the complete opposite experience. And I think that that stuck in my mind. The idea when reading some of the qualitative results was like, you know, some people saying like, basically in say in my office, my life, I'm going through the hardest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Um, you know, it might've been something like, you know, uh, watching my parents struggle with dementia by themselves in the UK while I'm stuck here and I can't be there to support them. I'm going through the hardest thing that's ever happened to me, but my coworker next door has had none of that experience and basically doesn't care, you know, almost because they just haven't recognized that, that they haven't had the insight to realize that while their life has not changed, mine has completely changed. Um, that was the one that really stuck in my mind. Cause it's like, I, I guess in many ways I was that coworker, but basically my life has, you know, you and I were lucky. We didn't lose our jobs. We didn't, mm. we're, we're part of the laptop class. We can be typing along on our laptops from home or in coffee shops. Um, it was so easy to, to overlook the struggles mm. that people were going through. So, you know, so was there one particular scenario or story that stuck in your mind? I think the the ex extremeness um, of how people were impacted really stuck in my mind. Um, so the the severity how they how they have been impacted and how it it completely like yeah basically in a way like the words that they used like ruined ruined. Um, their life like also mm. you know like sort of relationships that kind of like just couldn't couldn't continue because it was just <clears throat> too long and there was no end inside but another really interesting one was also those um like a comment from australians who were overseas or say they were in the uk or wherever and were trying to come back into the country the i guess reaction they had from the people within here oh, was yeah. so negative that they said this is how can this be my country if my friends don't even want me back in my country as a fear that i would bring the virus in um so that was a really yeah and that was across the board as well where they said i don't i don't recognize my country anymore where i mm. am not able to enter my own country. Um, so that really stuck with me as well. Yeah. Lots of quite, yeah. um, heartbreaking yeah. stories in there. Yeah. Mm. And you wonder whether that goes away or how long that takes. Well, yeah. <laughs> Goodness. All right. So mm. that was pretty, um, that's not the way I want to leave this episode. Cause that's, that's obviously a really tough. That's not happy. <laughs> no, it's yes. definitely not happy. Um, one funny thing that I was thinking about and I, I will put it up. I'll put it up when I, I'm not going to bring it up now, but I'll show it when I put it, I'll edit it into the video. Um, so we, obviously that story attracted a bit of media attention. And um, on one of the previous episodes, I was talking to um, Professor Micah Bartels, who's a genetics of wellbeing professor. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you, you, you obviously are familiar with Micah. And um, yeah. she was saying that I have a genetically happy face. Um, and I think you also have a genetically happy face <laughs> and well, we kind of talked about it as an advantage, but I was thinking about it later that it is also a disadvantage in ways. Like if I mm. ever had to look tough, 
It's like if I had to like scare off a, <laughs> an enemy or something. Like I couldn't do it basically. I don't Wouldn't have work. A, I, don't, I just don't have a tough face, I don't think. So that's obviously a disadvantage in some scenarios. Not that I have to do that very often or ever, but um I guess what what was a funny thing that came out of one of those media engagements was they they brought a photographer with them and they kind of said to us like stand back to back and like look really serious because it's such a serious topic and like we just couldn't do that i'll put up the photo so people can see it but um, it's horrible why would she do that <laughs> it's like so the funny. worst thing <laughs> but yeah so funny you're right it, yes it's like look back to back like you know like uh um you know, like a buddy cop movie or something, or like Men in Black or something. Like, look very serious because this is anyway. And that was the worst instruction for us because obviously we just don't have that. <laughs> it clearly didn't work. No, it's yeah. an embarrassing photo. So let's just imagine mm. the photo is up right now. Um, people are gonna have a laugh if they're watching this. Anyway, um, <laughs> I mean, that's that's really that's we've been already an hour and a half, so I think that's um, that's long enough. I wanted to really thank you so much um, for your time. It's been such a cool roller coaster. Like like we said, we were basically strangers like three, four, three and a half, four years ago. Mm. Well, not basically, we were absolutely complete strangers. <laughs> um, it's been such a thrill to find and meet people that you can get along with so mm. well. Um, so yeah, so thanks for the episode and, and, uh, I guess thanks for, for everything else. Thank you, Matt. Um, the, the thanks goes, goes, goes right back and, um, yeah, hopefully we see each other very soon. Yeah, absolutely. One more thing I'm just going to ask you the, yes. the, um, the Campari test. No, is that what, no, the, the, the Negroni test. The Negroni test. We should have actually brought a Negroni to this episode. Yeah, it's absolutely. a Saturday night. <laughs> Why do we not have a drink in I don't our know. hand? That's true. <laughs> yes. Tell me what it is. So the Negroni test, I think actually like um, Mike came up with that. Um, basically, anyone who wants to join uh, working in our team needs to pass the Negroni test. And I'm not sure whether we should actually advertise that so publicly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that it's actually, it's, it sounds like it's related to alcohol, but it's actually divorced from alcohol. <laughs> It's working with nice people, literally. Like, um, so I think... would you want to drink a Negroni with them? That that was the that's the yes the thing. But obviously, that exactly. It's would you, it's about working with nice people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it makes all the difference, and it just makes yeah research and life so much fun. So we're ending on researching happy. <laughs> all right, thank you, Katina. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Take care. No